My name's Paul, and I'm a great recovering alcoholic. Very happy to be back here in Cincinnati sober. You know, Perry called me one day. Connie answered the phone and said Perry's on the phone. So I was happy to hear from him, and he said, can you come up and speak for the gratitude break? Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Better? Okay. I'll start from the beginning then. My name's Paul Hillman. I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Very happy to be here sober. Uh, Perry called us. Uh, I was down in Florida one day, and the phone rang, and Connie says, it's Perry. So I knew right away I only know one Perry. So he asked me if I'd come and give this talk, you know, and I couldn't say no. I was kind of thinking about when am I coming back to Cincinnati. You know, we were going to come back this summer anyway, and so God sent the message. You know, we were supposed to come back for this, and it couldn't have been a better day because it's Father's Day, you know. And uh, when I leave here, my daughter Mary Beth, who just read the traditions, is having an open house for the, all the kids and the family. And I'll be there. And uh, they'll see Dad sober, you know, with the love that I got in my heart for him. And, and I see that love in them, you know, because the reason is because of you people and Alcoholics Anonymous and because I don't drink anymore, you know. I was talking one time in a lead and. I said, I walked out on a wife and five kids. I said, I have to come up with how I make amends to that. And see, I don't make amends for other people. I make amends for me. Because those amends allow me to get rid of guilt and remorse. And allow me to be happy, joyous, and free. But I had to come up with how am I going to make amends in my own See, it's my, i got to work this program to my level of honesty. So it has to be the way I do it. I got done giving that talk, and the gentleman came up to me and he says, well, if you want to make amends to your kids, just let them love you. I thought, I'll be damned, you know. See, I'm I'm the kind of father that I can give, and I always try to, but I don't know how to take love. i got to learn how to receive that love. So we're going to have the open house today, and I said, Mary, Dad will pay for it. I said, you have the place, and I'll pay for it, you know. And Mary Beth said, Dad, it's Father's Day. Why don't you just let me cook a meal? And eat what I make. And I said, I'll be down. Mary? I said, I'd be very happy to eat what you make. You know, I said, just the way I am. I just want to buy everything for everybody, you know, and especially my family. But uh, so I'll be there after this, I tell you. And uh, listen, watching those grandkids, the 12 of them running around, you know, and almost learning their birth dates now, you know, but it's going to take a while. But uh, last Sunday I was down at the uh, Founders Day Banquet in Pinellas County, Florida. That's from people that are down there a long time, say Pinellas County. It's really Pinellas County. But, but I was down at the Founders Day Banquet, and they were supposed to have Nell Wing speak. Uh, and for those that don't know, Nell Wing was Bill Wilson's non-alcoholic secretary. So there were a lot of people there uh, expecting Nell Wing, but she apparently uh, went into Mayo Clinic with some health problem. And a woman came up from Pompano Beach named Tommy. And she gave a beautiful message. And by the way, they had microphone problems that day, too. I just happened to think of that. <laughs> but, uh, but So maybe that's what's happening today. I don't know. But uh, she said a couple things I want to share with you quickly. She was at Ebby's funeral. Now, Ebby was Bill Wilson's sponsor. Ebby was the person that was sober about three months. He had grown up with Bill Wilson in Vermont. They were good friends. They had drank together. They had uh, One time they were so damn drunk they... They chartered a pilot and flew an airplane into a, an airport in Manchester, Vermont, uh, which was not open yet. They just wanted to be the first ones to land there. So, so Bill and Ebby, this pilot flew them in. He didn't know who they were, you know. This pilot flew them in and they landed and they fell out of the plane. They couldn't, all these people in the town thought, hey, it's, it's the opening of the airport, you know. And so they flew in and landed and Bill and Ebby got out of the plane. They couldn't stand up. They fell on the ground. You know, there's a band playing. And here they are laying on the ground drunk. You know, they couldn't get up, you know. But uh, that, it was Ebby's, Bill, Ebby was Bill's friend, and Ebby had found sobriety in this group called the Oxford Group in New York. And uh, a gentleman named Sam Shoemaker, uh, Reverend Sam Shoemaker, was instrumental in that group in New York. And Ebby had found sobriety in that group, and he was sober about three months. And this was before AA ever existed, of course. And uh, so Ebby as a part of his sobriety, maintaining that, made a 12, what we call a 12-step call on Bill Wilson one day. And he called Bill Wilson and said, can I come over and talk to you? You know, Bill was still drinking. In fact, he was drunk. 
And uh, Bill said, yeah, come right on over, Ebby. It'd be good to see you. Well, Bill thought he'd be drunk, you know, because Ebby and he always drank together, you know. So Bill got out a bottle of gin, some pineapple juice, and put it on the table. I always like uh, W.C. W. Field says, somebody put pineapple in my pineapple juice, you know. But, but uh, anyway, he, he put uh, the gin and pineapple juice on the table, and Ebby knocks on the door, and here he is. Bill looks at him, and hell, he's sober, you know. He thought, what the hell? Is this guy sober? And so Ebby sat down with him and told him that he had found this religion, this group called the Oxford Group, and he had gotten religion. And so Bill kind of turned off on that because Bill couldn't buy the concept of a higher power, you know. So he turned off on that, but he offered uh, Ebby a drink, and Ebby said, no, I don't drink. I haven't had a drink in three months. So Bill drank and listened to him, and and uh, and then Ebby told him about the six principles of the Oxford Group, which became our 12 steps. But Ebby told him that you got to admit you're licked. You know, you got to have this thing, admit you're licked, and you and you got to be willing to make restitution. Okay, pardon me. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Well, I'll try my best. Better yet? Can you can you tape without the mic? Help me get Can anybody hear me? Better? All right. So anyway, Ebby's talking to Bill about these six principles of the Oxford group. You know, that's, that you got to admit you're licked. You got to be willing to make restitution to people. You know, you got to be willing to try to help other people. You know, he was telling about these principles, and Bill listened, but he, he turned off because he couldn't buy a concept of a higher power. So Ebby left, and Bill was there, and he drank his bottle of gin, and he passed out. And, and uh, a few days later, he couldn't, for a few days there, he couldn't get that thought that Ebby was sober out of his mind. He couldn't get that thought out of his mind. Ebby's sober. So what Bill did, he he was at the place where he knew he had to go check into a hospital again. He had been in Towns Hospital twice before, so he checked into Towns Hospital. He bought four bottles of beer and was drinking the last bottle on the steps going up into town's hospital. And he gets in his room, and, and it's in that room that Bill Wilson had his spiritual experience in that hospital. See, he couldn't get that thought of Ebby out of his mind. Ebby's sober. He couldn't get that thought of a, of a higher power, even though he couldn't buy into it. So after a couple of days in that hospital, Bill Wilson was in that hospital room, and he hit a place that he called ego deflation and death, to where he was completely defeated, powerless. And he said these words. He started to say, I want to I wanna live, but that didn't come out. What came out was, I want to, I want to, if there's a God, show yourself, I'll do anything. Bill Wilson had a spiritual experience. I don't want to scare anybody. This is what happened. This is the facts. And all of a sudden, that room lit up for him. And he felt a wind and a breeze and a peace and a calm that he never ever felt before. And he felt like he was on a mountaintop. And this, and this feeling was coming to him, this presence, you know. And he laid on the bed. He didn't know what he had. And he didn't know how long it lasted. But when it was over, uh, he thought, oh, I must have gone into DTs. He said, what have I got? What happened to me, you know? So he called the doctor there, Dr. Silkworth. And told him what happened, and this doctor, and he asked that doctor, "Do you think I'm crazy?" And the doctor said, "No, Bill, I don't think you're crazy." He said, "I've heard of these things, but I've never seen them. But whatever you got, keep it, because I've never seen you like this before." And so, Bill always called Ebby his sponsor, even though Ebby went back out and drank. And uh, Bill would keep him at his house, and he would help him. Try always tried to help him, help pay his expenses to live, even. Well, when Ebby died. With two and a half years of sobriety, finally, he died sober. Tommy, who gave that talk last Sunday down in Pine Ellis County, was at that funeral. And she said there were 12 people at that funeral, which that's what I want to share with you. There were 12 people at that funeral. And then she said, we have 12 steps. We have 12 traditions. We have 12 concepts of world service. And there were 12 people at every funeral.
And uh, I thought that was, to me, that, that really got to me, you know. She also asked Bill Wilson one time, she said, Bill, I'm trying to keep all these women, help all these women get sober, and they're all getting drunk on me. And Bill Wilson said, hey. I didn't say hey, <laughs> probably. That's what I'd say is hey. <laughs> Bill Wilson said, why do you think I made that 12-step call on Dr. Bob on Mother's Day in 1935? I didn't do it for him. I did it for me. That's why we do these 12-step calls. My sponsor's here this morning. I'm very gracious, grateful to see him. He told me one time he'd, he's done over 2,000 12-step calls in his life, and every one of them was a success. And I looked at him, and I thought, wow, how do you do that? He said, I stayed sober through every one of them, you know? <laughs> he said, some of those guys died, some of them went to jail, some of them didn't make it, but I stayed sober. Everyone's a success. And that's why we do what we do. That's why I'm here this morning. See, not to help anybody in this room. If that happens, that's a higher power doing that. I need you people more than you need me. And I know that. And I'm here to try to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous as I see it, as God allows me to carry it. And um, that's what I'm going to try to do. This is 13th Gratitude Breakfast. Seems like just yesterday I chaired the first one. And, uh, in fact, I saw Reverend Jim's double, uh, Bob C. And, and Larry S. here this morning. They were at that first breakfast, among others, I'm sure, in this room. But the reason I focus on them because Larry taped that meeting. We didn't have any funds at Intergroup to do it. I was Intergroup chairman. And what happened was everybody on the committee picked an event. So I had read in a Grapevine magazine that there was a group down in Texas that had an old-timers meeting, you know. And I thought, well, we ought to have one of those in Cincinnati, you know. So sometimes in your life, you know, you just get an idea and it's right. And that was right. I mean, it's just, that was God's will, as I, I know now today. But so we got the place, the quality in across the river. And uh, Larry was going to tape it, you know. And I thought, well, we got to get a speaker. So I thought, well, well, the one person I always looked up, kind of looked up to, was Wade H., who was uh, in our program. He's passed on now. I thought, well, I'll call him. And I was scared to death to call him. You know, I got his phone number from JTS Brown. Both of them are at a meeting this morning up in the big meeting in the sky, you know. And uh, so I'll call JTS Brown. So I got the number from JTS Brown. And uh, and I called Wade Hoyt this night, shaking. And uh, he lit up Mount Adams. He answered the phone. He says, well, I told him what I wanted. I wanted to speak at the first gratitude breakfast. And he said, well, call me back at 8 o'clock. I'm eating my supper. And I thought, okay. You know, that's how God works in my life. You know, I don't get an instant answer. i got to learn patience. So I, I hung up that phone and waited. I couldn't wait till 8 o'clock. I thought, now do I call him at 8 or 10 after or give him time or what, you know. So so I called him back, and I asked him what we were going to do, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. Well, he came. He was a sick person when he came. He had, his wife told me afterwards he had had chest pains the day before that he would not have been able to do it the day before. And what he did, Wade was a gentleman, you know. He asked his son, who was in town, to give part of the talk too. And so we heard a little bit of Wade, and then we heard his son's story from Chris H. that morning. And it was, it was a beautiful message. And we had a big jug. We had a gratitude jug sitting in the corner. We asked people to put donations in for intergroup, you know. I remember going home with that jug and Connie and I sitting in the kitchen and we're emptying out the money count. And, boy, we're getting all this money for intergroup. We got like about 140 bucks or something like that for donations to intergroup, you know. And uh, But that was it. That was the first breakfast. And uh, and to see it to grow over these years, it's just, to me, a gift and a, and a blessing to be able to be asked to speak here at the 13th Annual Gratitude Breakfast. Okay. 62 years and five days ago, AA was founded. June 10th, 1935. 62 years ago, on April 13th, I was born. You know, when I first found out today it was founded in 1935, I thought, wow, maybe they, maybe, maybe they did it for me, you know? <laughs> so I look back on it, and I like to fantasize that it was for me. It was for everybody in this room, really. But it, I'm important. I'm the one I gotta, see, my sobriety got the most important thing in the world. So I like to fantasize when my mother used to push me around in a baby buggy in Madisonville where I was born and all these she, she used to tell me all these women used to come up and look at the baby you know and look at me and say boy look at those dimples you know and uh, I might still have some of them but uh, and they'd say boy he's going to be a lady killer you know and that's always what I ever wanted to be was a lady killer you know I didn't want to be anything else but a lady killer you know I, that, I must have heard that 
But uh, but I like to I like to fantasize that God saw my behavior from April 13th, 1935 to June 10th, 1935, and said, "We got to get a program for this guy, or he ain't gonna make it." You know? <laughs> and uh, and Alcoholics Anonymous was founded as a gift to all of us, really. Popped out of my mother's womb like a cork out of a champagne bottle, an alcoholic, <laughs> just waiting for a drink. And finally it came. I don't know, maybe she gave me a drink when I was a baby. You know, and back in those days, you'd lay in the crib and you'd cry, and they'd put a little whiskey in a bottle and some milk, and they'd give it to you, you know, and you'd think, you know, they want you to sleep or something. Because we always lived in three-room apartments, you know. We never had any money. But actually, we lived in what today you call the ghetto. But we didn't know how. We didn't know anything. This is where we lived. But uh, uh, when I found alcohol, I mean, I, I think I was alcoholic. I was born an alcoholic, my own opinion of myself. And uh, I see it in my family. I see it in my grandparents and, and other people in my family. So I think I was born an alcoholic. The oldest of three boys, you know. And uh, I never liked my home. We never had anything where we talked about love at home. And that's nothing against my mom and dad, because my mom was a wonderful mother, and my dad was a wonderful father. He, all I remember is back in those days, dad worked and mom kept the house, you know. And that's the way it was, you know. And dad drank. And, uh, and dad would come home drunk. And my mom and dad would fight. And I'd watch him... Uh, Go after each other a few times, a couple times with butcher knives, you know. Then I watched my dad uh, pass out on the floor, you know. I remember one day he passed out on the floor, and my brother's four years younger than me. He went up and got his wallet and took a $5 bill out of it and uh, went down to the candy store on the corner and bought $5 worth of candy. Well, back in those days, $5 bought you a ton of candy, you know. I mean, you get a bunch for a penny, you know. But uh, he bought this candy and passed out to everybody in the neighborhood, you know. And dad woke up, and he thought... He wasn't too happy with that, you know, because $5 was a lot of money in those days, you know, that was a lot of money. I never, everybody's house always looked better. I never had a bicycle in my life. I always had a big poor me about that. I always wanted a bicycle, you know. I always wanted a puppy. Well, we got a puppy finally. I was about the first or second grade. Beautiful dog named Spot. And I, I had this puppy, and I'd hold him and love him, and... One day, my mom, I was heartbroken. My mom said, we're going to get rid of Spot. we got to take him to the SPCA. And I said, what for? See? And she said, well, because we can't keep him. And my heart was broken, you know. I love dogs. In fact, I told my wife, I may get buried with my dogs out in the pet cemetery. Because uh, they would they would not know the difference. I'd give them my cremains, just like we had Max here this morning, you know. She could take my cremains out there and say, this is Polly, our dog, you know. And then, <laughs> And they'd, they'd bury me right next to my puppy, you know. But, uh, but I, 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 can't you hear me again? Anyway, can you hear me better? I better hold down like this then. But anyway, I, I showed my mom one time I had seven dogs and three cats, you know, and, uh, but now I got three dogs and I love them. But uh, went to grade school and I misunderstood God for some reason. I got a concept of a God that was, uh, well, I thought God was like Santa Claus. I thought God was making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who was naughty or nice, and that was me. You know, I had ego because I thought God was looking at me, focusing on Paul, you know, this, all the things I was doing, you know. And I heard about these Ten Commandments. And I and I looked at them, you know, and I saw thou shalt not. Well, whenever I hear thou shalt not, you know, it don't take long before I'm saying why not, you know. And... Uh, and some of those Ten Commandments were fun, you know, when you did them, you know. And, and uh, make a long story short, uh, I think God, I like to fantasize this, that God gave this program. See, we have a disease of moreism. We want more, more, more. See, I never, I was drinking, and even today, I never get enough, you know, sometimes. I always want more. But I think God gave us more. He gave us those 12 steps. And those 12 steps are for people like me, I think, that cannot work the Ten Commandments, you know. Because i got to get the cart before the horse. Once I got into the steps, then I can look at the commandments from a different viewpoint, you know. And uh, so, But I misunderstood a lot back in those days. And, and I always felt guilty. 
I'd walk around in all this guilt, you know. Everything I did, I felt guilty. Fear. I'd walk down the street, I'm afraid of everything. You know, they had gangs back in those days, uh, just like you got now, nothing's changed. Except they didn't use the same weapons back in those days, you know. They used, like, brass knuckles and knives and chains and stuff like that when I was growing up. Now they use rat-a-tat-tat, you know. They would use these things that I don't want to maybe get around, you know. But, but, uh, but we had the same problem. I had this guilt and this fear, self-pity. Poor Paul, never never felt comfortable with anybody. Parents used to say, children should be seen and not heard. So I never knew what to say to anybody. You know, I'd get out with somebody. I didn't know what to tell to say to them. One-on-one, I was scared. We used the word shitless. I didn't know what to say to somebody, you know. So I had my first drunk somewhere between grade school and high school. I went to this party, and there were guys and girls. And uh, we had stole some wine from the local drugstore. And we had Pepsi-Cola, and we mixed wine and Pepsi-Cola. We didn't have a lot of drugs when I was growing up. And we mixed this wine and Pepsi-Cola, and we had music, and we were trying to learn how to dance, and what do you do with girls, and all this stuff. And Anyway, uh, I got drunk. First time I got around it, I got drunk. I remember walking down the street, uh, throwing up, sick, right past that drugstore where we stole the wine. You know, and I'm throwing up. I'm thinking, I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. And I didn't. Unless I, in a blackout, mixed wine and Pepsi-Cola, I never did it again, you know? But I drank, I don't like Pepsi-Cola to this day, and I never really, I never really liked wine, but I had to drink that, you know? In fact, one time my wife had a wine rack in our kitchen. She was getting all this wines in a month club from Pogue's department store, and she's filling this rack up, and I'd come up in the morning sick and hung over and popped my 20 milligrams of Valium and I'd put a little booze in a coffee cup and, and I'd stand there sick. i got to face another day, you know, and i look over at that wine rack and I'd think, well, maybe I'll just take a little drink, you know. Well, I'm going to tell you what happened. I took the first drink out of that wine rack. I drank the whole wine rack from the bottom bottom up. Now, I didn't do it one day, of course, but what I do is I found out you drink them from the bottom up. They, they don't notice they're empty down there until you get to the top row. <laughs> <laughs> and Connie never noticed anyway. So. But uh, but I went to this party and I thought, it was it. I'll never do that again. Got out of grade school and I went to high school and I went to an all-boys high school. Now, to me, that's cruel and unusual punishment for a person like me who had these other this other problem. I had these impure thoughts, you know. And um, so I get to this, this boys' high school. But they were nice to us. Once a month, they let us at least see girls, you know. They had a dance, and, and they'd bring girls in from the local Catholic schools. And there's nothing against the Catholic church, by the way. It's the way I per- misperceived it. But but they would bring uh, girls in from the local Catholic schools, and we'd stand there on the dance floor, and I was there, man. I was hip. And I had this DA haircut, and I had this uh, these uh, peg pants on with X loops and inverted flaps. And I had this pink shirt with a roll collar. And I had these, these uh, quasi- Alligator shoes, what I call quasi, means they're imitation and cheap. And uh, and I and I'd stand in there, I'd look at these guys and girls dancing, you know, and I'd want to be out there. You know, I'd want to be out there. But I see, I was afraid to ask the girl to dance because if she said no to me, I got red, my face got hot, I sweated, I got sensitive because you know I'm a sensitive person, you know. And if somebody says no to me, you know. The other thing was, to be very honest with you, I never really ever wanted to dance with any girl. What I wanted to do, I never knew any other way to do but to ask him to dance first, you know. So, so I'd stand there and I and I and I'd get resentful. I'd look at these guys dancing and I'd say in my mind, well, I know why they're out there dancing because they got a car. If I had a car, I'd be out there dancing, you know. And then I'd think, well, now I don't have a car, but I never had a bicycle in my life. My family wasn't as good as anybody else, you know, and that poor puppy that I lost, you know, and I'd stand there and get a big poor me. Well, I found out if I poured me a few drinks before I got there, a couple beers, you know, it didn't matter if those girls said no or not, you know, can you still hear me? It didn't matter if, if these girls said no or not, so I'd go up and ask a girl to dance, she'd say no, I'd bop on to the next one, you know, and you want to dance? No. First you know I'm counting the no's, you know what I'm saying? So, but I found it's, like, it's a lot like this, I think, that if, if you want to sponsor an Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you want to talk to somebody in AA on the phone, you got to keep calling, you know. And eventually, somebody's going to say yes to you. You got to keep asking somebody to be your sponsor, and then keep calling if you want to talk to somebody. Because what I did, I kept asking girls to dance, and finally one of them said yes. Then I really had a problem, you know, because 
I don't know how to dance. What am I going to say to this girl when I get her out there on the dance floor, you know? So I get her out there and, and I can't, and I try to, the only thing I ever learned was the box step. So I get around, I try not to bump into anybody, try to, I couldn't never heard the music. And, um, and I'm trying to say, well, I'm going to say this girl, you know? So I'd say something like this, usually every time. I'd say, how are you tonight? And she'd say, fine. And I'd say, well, I'm fine too. And I'd dance. And I'd try not to bump into anybody, try not to step on her toes. And I couldn't wait till that dance was over because I couldn't think what to say to her. And I'd take her back to the table and I'd sit her down and I'd say, thank you very much. Well, my mother would have been proud of me because she always wanted to be a good boy, you know. And uh, and I'd put her down and I'd walk back. And uh, once in a while, you know, just show what kind of guys we were. You know, we found out that well, one guy dancing with a girl, the other guy can rip off her purse, too, you know. But... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to let you think. See, you're supposed to admit your faults in this program, you know, to God and our fellow man, among other things. I don't have time for the other things. But but, uh, but see, the reason I tell you that story is because that's the way I was with everything in my life. I was just glad when it was over. I mean, whether it was jobs, people, world. I remember one time I got out of high school. I went down and put an application for three companies for a job in downtown Cincinnati. Went home, told my mom. She got happy and smiling, you know, and, and uh, I felt good because she was happy, you know. But as I look back on it, I never ever wanted to work. All I ever wanted to do was put an application in and just feel like I might have the potential to get a job, you know. I never wanted the job. I just want to walk around that good feeling, you know. And I go out and drink and tell everybody I may get a job, you know. Got my application in, you know. Well, what happened to me was three weeks later, a company called me and they said, come on down for an interview, you know. I thought, oh, shit, an interview. I can't go to an interview. You can't smoke in an interview, you know, and you, and you got to sit there and my face gets red and I get hot. I don't know what to say to him, you know. So I went down to that interview and I look back on it. God was always taking care of me in my life. I got the job and um, show you kind of person I am. I stayed at that company for 37 years almost and and uh, only because they didn't fire me, you know. But uh, and then I worked four years, nine months after that part time for them. So they were good to me. The company was good to me. So I got that job, and I was there about a year and a half. And I was up in a, and the more money I got, the more I drank. I looked back on it, and if I had the money, I drank more. That's what, I didn't know what else to do with money. So I was in this bar one night, and I was 19 years old, and I had 10 mixed drinks. And only an alcoholic remember that, because that's back in 1954, you know. I had 10 mixed drinks, and I stood up, and see, all my friends were going airborne, they're going Marines, Korean Wars on. And I wanted to be a part of that, but I was afraid. So with 10 mixed drinks, I stood up and said, well, thank God I said this and not airborne. I said, tomorrow I'm going to go down and volunteer for the draft, you know. And I did. I went down the next day and volunteered for the service, not because I'm patriotic, because mainly because I was afraid to go back in a bar and face those people again if I didn't <laughs> go down and join the service, you know. So I went in the Army, and God was good to me. He gave me high blood pressure so they wouldn't send me to the front line, you know. So, so I relieved the whack for active duty. And I became a, a a clerical MOS. So I went after basic training. And I, I'm sitting there, and these I had to take 90 hours of typing. You know, we'd march over with our rifles, put them down, go in and sit at our typewriters. And, uh, and I could I could type 45 words a minute before I went there, you know, because I took it typing in high school. So after 90 hours of typing, I just made 50 minutes, which is what you need to get out of there, 50 words a minute. And uh so then I got out of there, and everybody was going overseas. But except our cycle, they said, well, we need some people for the states. So I got sent to Fort Sam Houston, Texas. And that, to me, was a country club of the Army. You know, I had a swimming pool on every, every about every block. I had a Class A pass. I had friends that, uh, see, don't let this face fool you. I can con people. I had a pass for every mess hall on the, on the base. And I'd need something. I had somebody working someplace I knew to get it for me, you know. And uh, Anyway, I found a little bar in downtown San Antonio called the Paradise Lounge. And, boy, that's what I was looking for, paradise, you know. And I walk in, beer was a quarter of a bottle. And there were women sitting around in there, you know, and they had a little dance floor, you know. And I thought, boy, this is it. I'm in heaven, you know. And I didn't realize that at the time, but it would take more beer for me, five or six or seven or eight of them maybe, to, <clears throat> before I get up the nerve to ask somebody to dance. Well, the first girl I asked in that place to dance, she said yes. I thought, boy, this is it, you know. See, I got out. I found out later, not many of them said no in that place, you know. But, but, the, 
anyway, I'm out there on the dance floor with her, and I'm dancing, you know. And this was the first girl in my life that looked at me for more than 20 seconds. And, boy, I thought she liked me, and I loved her. was right on that dance floor, you know. I fell in love with her, you know. And so we went on our first what I like to call a fair. Not so much the regular kind of affairs, but a fair with a bottle because she liked to drink and I liked to drink. We got these Texas fists, these half gallons. We'd bring them in and we drank, you know. And uh, I always like to fantasize that maybe she's in AA. I'm hoping today for her. But uh, anyway, uh, at the end of six months, I was heartbroken when she said we got to break up because I'm pregnant. And I said, no, wait a minute. See, I'm, my mother always told me to be a good boy. So I said, don't worry about it. I'll marry you. She said, well, no. She said, you're not the father. <laughs> to let you know how sick I was in those days, I said, that's okay. I'll marry anyway, you know. But the, except when I look back on it, hell, I couldn't marry her. She's already married, you know. So, but, the, but that's how I was. So I was standing on the back porch of the barracks one day, and I'm looking down at, at the San, downtown San Antonio, and there's a tower that lights up whenever there's an auto fatality in the Bear County, Texas, and uh, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking about death, and I'm thinking about, this was, I think, a spiritual guy was trying to get to me, because God, my thoughts were, when the heck was the last day that I didn't have a drink? I'm about, just about 20 years old. I couldn't remember that day. I got this sick feeling in me, and I thought, oh, no. You know, I didn't like that feeling, so I rationalized or conned myself out of the fact that I had a problem. I said, what are you worried about, Paul? Well, it's only a quarter of a bottle of beer. You're not hurting anybody. You're not like PSC Millwood drinking Aqua Velva. You're not like the sergeant that lays in the bed and drinks fists all weekend. You're not like that. Don't worry about it. Well, it took me 21 more years. And that day, I went from the bottom shelf to the top shelf, and it was out there. I got it, you know. And I'd watch these people on television drinking at Christmas time. They're drinking Harvey Bristol Cream, you know. And their trees are back there. There's music, and they're happy. I thought, well, maybe that's it. So I went out and bought some Harvey Bristol Cream one time. <laughs> I should have known I was going to have a problem because I didn't just get one bottle. You know, I got two, and I brought them home, and I drank them, and I found out I got just as sick on that stuff and sicker, in fact, you know. But uh, but I was out there. I tried to get it, you know. So I look back over my drinking, and I don't know how many years it is. It used to be important to me. It's not anymore. But I think I can remember three to four times when I really got where I wanted to be, when it was all worth it, even though I was going to be sick the next day and throw up, I got there, you know, and I'd say to myself, this is all worth it, you know, and it lasted about 20 seconds and it was gone, you know, and I can get an Alcoholics Anonymous today, better feelings than I ever got then, if I choose them, I have to make the choice, to me happiness is a choice, I have to insist, entirely insist on enjoying life, that's what it says in the book, the insist is only there one time in that book. I got to entirely insist on enjoying life. And that means I got to insist. That means I got to say to other people, no, I'm going to enjoy my life. You see, now, I'm in Florida now. And I wrote back my high school paper recently. I said, well, I'm fully retired. I'm in Florida. And I, I found out that I was born to be a beachcomber, you know. And I told them uh, that God's beautiful. I'm enjoying God's beautiful world. Because, as Linda might relate to, on the seventh day, God rested, you know. And this is my seventh day, you know. So I'm enjoying God's beautiful world. And I'll tell you why. Because somebody's got to do it. Everybody else is running around hectic. All these, hey, I'm going to enjoy God's world. You know, that's what it's here for, in my opinion. Alcoholics Anonymous has given me that thinking. I think the whole program is, our whole program is just changing our thinking. And it takes a lifetime to do it. See, I used to react to life by taking a drink. Now I react to life by taking a tool, using a tool that you people gave me. A step, a big book, a sponsor, a meeting, phone call. And I'll tell you what, if you're having trouble with the program, get a sponsee. I guarantee you. It'll help you more than anything else, you know. This gentleman just asked me to be a sponsor in Florida. And I'm not a phone person very much. But he he asked me, you want me to call you every day? I said, no, you don't have to report in. I said, we'll, we'll see it. I like to see it at meetings. So the next day the phone rings. And it's him. Next day the phone rings. It's him. <laughs> and it rings sometimes two and three times a day. And I'm working through this. You know, I've learned to love this guy. 
I can't wait for him to call me. You know? So what I found out is that if I want to change my thinking and change and grow, I got to do something I don't want to do. That's how I grow. Or by not doing something that I want to do, I grow. That's how I grow in this program. Got out of the Army, and I came back to Cincinnati, Ohio, and went back to that same job. I got a part-time job in a bar, same bar that I'd had those 10 mixed drinks in. I was a waiter. So I'd work 8 to 5 at the job and 6 to midnight in this bar. One night I'm walking through there carrying a tray of drinks in my hand, and I look down, and there's just two women sitting at a table, and I looked at one of them, and she looked at me for more than 20 seconds. And, boy, I thought she liked me, and I loved her. It was right there just like that, you know? Second girl in my life, so... I went over and talked to her, and she had a, that friend with her, so I had a friend with me, and I didn't have, still didn't have a car, never had a car in my, for a long time. And uh, so we went out to Chris's and ate, and make a long story short, seven months later we got married. That was my first wife. I had a chance with her because she was just engaged at that time, you know. And uh, so, but, uh, but anyway, take you through nine quick years. At the end of nine years, we have five children. We have gone from living to an apartment to living in with her mother to a little house out in Grosbeck near here and uh, on the GI Bill. And I'm getting more responsibility on my job, and I'm drinking more, and I'm getting more money. And I'm, now I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I'm kind of passing out at night. I'm having blackouts, and I think only alcoholics have blackouts. And I'm uh, waking up in the 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, don't remember going to sleep, and I'm starting to shake. And I found the morning drink, you know. I was always afraid to go to those bars in the morning. But I want to tell you this, because to me, I've been in hell. You see, I'm not going to hell. I've been in hell. I'm in heaven right now, and I'm going to heaven. I'm getting Heaven's going to get better for me, you know. We get a touch of heaven on earth here in this program. But I've been in the hell. I've been driving the streets, shaking, sick, trying to find a place that was open so I could get a drink. And then when I get there, I'm afraid to go in. Paranoid fears. I'd bounce up and down outside to see if it looked okay. And I'd go in, and I finally told myself, I said, well, you know, these, these people don't know that I'm not uh, working all night, you know. So I'd go in and act like I worked all night. And this is my morning. This is my evening, you know. And I and I was scared to order booze. I just ordered beer, and I needed a drink bad. So I'd take a, a gallon of beer home with me, and I'd drink it. And I'd go to work. And uh, on a normal day, towards the end of my drinking, I'd get up and pop 20 milligrams of Valium. And I go to work. I'm also an addict. And I go to work. And then about 10 o'clock, I'd sneak out and get a drink. And then I'd uh, maybe take a value, depending on how shaky I was. Then I'd come back, go to lunch and drink. Then I'd come back, and uh, about 2 o'clock, I'd drink, maybe go to a meeting uh, at work. And then uh, take a value to make it through that meeting. 5 o'clock, I could really drink, you know. And I'd go out with the 5 o'clock crowd, and we'd go to a bar. And about 6, 6, 30, they go home. and the new crowd comes in, the 7, 8 o'clock crowd, and I drink with them, and they go home about 10. And then I'm there at 10, and the 10 o'clock late crowd comes in, and they start going home about 12 or 1, and I'm saying, hey, it's party time. What are you going home for? You know, let's go across the river. So I go over across the river and drink. I go home about 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd, uh, uh, sometimes one night I knocked on the door because I cut an artery that night, and I had to go to the hospital, fell in a whiskey glass. But anyway, I come home, and I went to work. I go to work the next day. You see, you see, alcoholics don't have willpower. Uh-huh. We got willpower, but we just we don't have any power over that first drink. See, what I got is an obsession in my mind that without help from a power greater than me, I'm going to take a drink. And once I take that drink, I can't stop. I got that allergy in my body that won't let me stop, and then it gets me to a place where I got a spiritual soul sickness where I can't love anybody, even myself. And one of the, some of the worst things I did wasn't, Police didn't like a lot of things I did, but the ones that I didn't like so much is when I give my kids money and watch their eyes light up when I put them, say, put it in your piggy bank, you know. And I, and I meant that. And I'd wake up at 3.30 in the morning, I didn't have any money. And I'd think of those piggy banks, you know. And I'd go out there with a knife and a handkerchief and get that money out of those piggy banks so I could get a drink, you know. That's the stuff. It's not so much what society said, you know, like a time I got arrested for malicious destruction of property as I drove my car in the front door of a bar, you know, leaving the scene of accidents. I mean, that's just normal stuff. That didn't, that don't impact me inside, like taking money from my kids out of the piggy bank, you know. 
the end of nine years, I, I couldn't uh, take responsibility anymore for that marriage. So I walked out on my wife and five kids. And I went to live in an apartment. And I found there was a girl I'd worked with. She didn't like this part. She just left, I guess. But, uh, there was a girl I, I, maybe she went shopping. Last night she told me she didn't want to go shopping while I'm talking because she's heard this so many times. But, but uh, there was this girl I worked with, and that was the third girl in my life that I thought liked me. And, boy, she looked at me, and we worked together, and I loved her, you know. I knew I was going to get a divorce. I knew I was going to lose the car I'd finally gotten in the house. But in the, but she, so we'd drink together, and we'd go on. We became a good drinking team. And uh, one time she asked me, this is when I really fell in love with her, when she asked me, she said, uh, well, I know you got money problems. Could I loan you $500? And I said, wow, you know. Don't let this face fool you, you know. So I took the, I borrowed the $500. I, I humorously said, I don't know if I paid her back yet, you know, after 28 years of marriage, coming up on 28 years. But the, so anyway, make a long story short, we got married. And for a while there, my alcoholism kind of controlled itself. You know, I was on the elevator going down, but I didn't go down any further. I just stayed even for a while. And then it went down fast. One night I woke up, I thought, i got to do something or I want to kill myself. So I made the first of my three trips to the psychiatric institutions in this area. And uh, I was very ecumenical about it. You know, the first time I went to Emerson North. And the second time I went to Good Sam at the Catholic Hospital. And I went to the Jewish psych ward. So I, I tried them all, you know. And uh, when I went over to the Jewish hospital that last time, you know, I had been drinking for nine days because I'd had a DUI on a couch. And I hadn't gotten off that couch much in nine days. You know, I drink, one of my definitions of an alcoholic is if you can drink warm vodka out of a bottle, you're an alcoholic, you know. And that's what I did for about nine days. And uh, so I went over to that hospital and tried to get checked into the psych ward at Jewish. They wouldn't take me. They said, we can't take you. And I, I looked down on a piece of paper. I said, why not? She wrote on a piece of paper, D-R-U-N-K. They can't take you when you're D-R-U-N-K, I guess. And I said, well, what do I do? She said, go home and sober up and we'll take you. So I went home and went in there the next couple of days later, and man, they had me that time. That's when I did the Thorazine shuffle. You know, I mean, they had me. I'm walking and I'm slobbering. I can't lift my arms, and I'm telling my wife, "I'm gonna get out of here," you know, and I, I can't talk. And uh, but I got out. I became chairman of the social committee and had had Connie bring in pizzas. We had a big pizza party, you know, and uh, they thought I was getting better, I guess. But, but anyway, I got out of there and. But I'm glad I went to those places because I learned a lot about myself. One day I was in the good Sam Sack ward. They want to make a case history out of me. And I thought, well, there's no way they're going to anybody do that. So I wasn't crazy, you know, except I hid in a phone booth all day so this girl wouldn't find me. <laughs> and, I, you know, if anybody had walked around that psych ward, what the hell is he doing that phone booth, you know? But the, I didn't want her to make a case history out of me. July 3rd, 1976. My wife and I took a vacation to Florida, and I said, we got to get away, Connie. If I can just get away, I can maybe, I'll try not to drink. She said, well, I'll go on this vacation with you if you don't drink. I said, I won't drink. So we flew to Florida on an airplane. I didn't take a drink. So the night of July 3rd, we were at this, our favorite restaurant in Sarasota, Florida, and the waitress comes up and says, would you like a before-dinner drink? And I said, yeah, give me a beef eater martini. Connie said, no, you weren't going to drink. And I said, oh, I'm just going to have a couple. I said, I'm not going to drink. I said, tomorrow's the 200th anniversary of our country, and I want to celebrate it. I've never celebrated anything in my life. Tomorrow, I'm just going to celebrate it. So I drank that first drink. And what happens to me when I drink the first one, my thinking changes, you see. And that drink's going to take the second drink. So she came back again. I said, yeah, give me another one. Now my thinking's really changing. So I'm thinking about how am I going to celebrate tomorrow? I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go across the street to the liquor store and get a fifth of booze and celebrate it tomorrow. So I told my wife that, and she said no. And I said, yeah, I'm going, because I want to celebrate the anniversary of our country. So I walked across the street. On the way over, I said, well, maybe I'll get a quart because it's cheaper. And that's another definition I got of an alcoholic. If you ever gone to a liquor store and got a quart because it's cheaper, you might be an alcoholic, you know. <laughs> but, the, but I I got that quart, and I... And I, and I put it in the trunk of the car because I didn't want her to see it. We got back to our hotel room. She's laying on the bed. I'm nipping on that quart of B.O. 
And I thought, well, how am I going to celebrate 200th anniversary? I know what I'll do. I'll go fishing tomorrow. So I went out in the car. I always had fishing rods with me, and we rented a car. So I started casting a fishing rod around that hotel room while drinking that B.O., and Connie's watching the ships in Boston Harbor and fireworks, I guess. But So anyway, what happened to me was this is what happened. I blacked out while casting that fishing rod, which means I kept casting it but don't remember doing it. So somehow that hook, and I left the hook on. You know, I used to cast it in the wastebasket, and I'd think I'm bringing in big tarpon, you know. And so anyway, I, I, this hook comes back around me, and it cuts into my shoulder, and the shock of that, there's blood running down, brings me out of the blackout. And I looked down at that, and I thought, what the heck's that? I cut another artery, I thought, you know. So I called the only higher fire I, I knew that would listen to me, Connie. And I said, Connie. So she came over and looked at it, and we didn't have any methylate or caricrome, but, but I hadn't had the foresight to bring a bottle of Listerine, just in case, you know. So, but uh, so she uh, she put some Listerine on it, and boy, that hurt. Not because it burned, but because I passed out. I woke up the next morning about 5:30, and I was as sick as I'd ever been in my life. I mean, I'm sick, and I'm I'm on pills. I wasn't going to drink, and I did, and I got this guilt and remorse. And I'm walking out on the beach, and I'm running, I'm jogging, and nothing's taking away that sick feeling. And I prayed this prayer, which was answered. I said, God, help me. And I meant that. And God, help me. As I walked back to the room, and I looked down, there was a cocktail lounge menu there, and it said, had written on the cocktail lounge, opens at 10 a.m. So I said the second prayer for that day. God, help me live to 10 a.m., you know. (laughs) And that prayer was answered. And at 10 a.m., I walked in that room, that cocktail lounge, and I said, give me four gin and tonics to go. Because I was shaking so bad I couldn't sit. I got the four gin and tonics. I drank them behind the stairwell. Went in with that tray, and I said, give me three more. No, make it four more. There's another guy up in the room with us. There's a, I said, give me four more gin and tonics. And I drank those behind the stairwell with eight gin and tonics. I was able to go and sit. So I went in and sat on that bar stool, and I looked up, and I thought, what the hell am I going to do? It's the 200th anniversary of our country, and I'm drunk again, you know. I wasn't going to get drunk. I can't go back to the room because she's there. What am I going to do? Well, I looked up, and I saw a bottle of wine on the shelf. And Oh, and the other thought I had was the liquor stores are closed, you know. <laughs> I looked up. I saw a bottle of wine on the shelf. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll get that bottle of wine. I'll make it to the day on wine. Tomorrow, the liquor store is open. I got it made. Oh, this is what happened to me, and it's happened to everybody in the room a little different, or we wouldn't be here. But... Uh, I got that bottle. I blacked out on that bar stool again. Second time in 12 hours, I blacked out. And this was told to my wife by the guy that brought me back to the room. But apparently, I got that bottle of wine, got off that bar stool, walked out in the hotel lobby of the Holiday Inn on Longboat Key, Florida, July 4th, 1976, the 200th anniversary of our country, right into the middle of an AA conference. <laughs> and, these, and these AA members were in the lobby, and I'm sure they saw me coming, you know. And uh, some of them are probably saying, oh, shit, a 12-step call, you know. But, but they saw me coming, you know. And uh, when this guy said he got in the middle of the lobby carrying that bottle of wine, and he fell. And he said when he was falling, he turned over so he wouldn't break that bottle of wine. And I know I would do that. I'd better break an arm than break that bottle of wine, you know. And he says he was laying on the floor, and I came up to him. And I asked him, what's wrong? And he said, I need AA. Now, I would have never said that to anybody. See, if you'd have walked up to me and said, you need Alcoholics Anonymous when I'm on that floor, I'd have said, the hell I do. As soon as I get off this floor, I'll be okay. I don't need AA. See, I wasn't bad enough for AA. I meant that in my mind. And uh, But this guy came up to me. He knew what was wrong with me, you know. But he asked me the basic question of Alcoholics Anonymous that we all got to answer inside ourselves. The question is, what's wrong? i got to answer that question. Because he said that, I said, I need AA. Now, I don't know what made me say that. He picked me up. He took me back to the room, put me to bed, talked to my wife for about over an hour, took my inventory and said, that guy's an alcoholic. <laughs> Give him this card when he wakes up, have him call me. And you get your little butt to Alan on, he told my wife, you know. And uh, so I woke up. Here's Connie presenting me with this card like a Cheshire cat with a big smile on her face, you know. And she's, she likes to do that stuff to me when I'm, when I'm hungover, you know. So anyway, I, she presents this card. This guy wants you to call him. I said, well, who in hell is he? There's an AA member from Sarasota, Florida. I said, what's he want? You know? He wants you to call him. I said, I'm not calling him. 
my wife said these magic words of Al- of Al-Anon. I hope I always remember it. One of these days I'll get them right, the way she said it. But she said, basically, you weren't going to drink. You got drunk. My vacation's over and I'm going home. Our bags are already packed, you know. And I said, now, wait a minute. You know, let me go down and write the check. I'll pay for the bill. And I'll go down and get a drink to sink. See, I, need, I meant that many a time. I just need a drink to sink. Then I'll do something about my drinking, you know. Just let me think a minute. I need a drink to sink. I went down and got that drink to sink and, and the, in the form of a six pack, came back to the room, we got in the car, we were going back to tell her mother who lived, my mother-in-law who lived in Florida, that we were going home. And something was happening to me. Because when I walked in my mother-in-law, I said to her, Louise, I tried not to drink and I couldn't. I got drunk and I'm sorry. Well, I would have never said that to my mother-in-law before. And secondly, I was taking the first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and never knew they existed. Because Louise said, why don't you call AA, my mother-in-law? And I said to her, you call and I'll talk. To my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, dialed Alcoholics Anonymous. I talked. And on July 4th, 1976, all by himself, came this beautiful lady member named Bill, to 12-step call on me, mainly for himself, to stay sober. You know, that's why he came, not for me. And he had seven months sobriety. I looked at him. He walked in. His eyes were red. And I said, I thought maybe this guy's still drinking, you know. And uh, so my mother-in-law said, you like, you like something to drink? And, and I thought, boy, if he says gin and tonic, that's what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> but but he said coffee. And I said coffee. And I've been drinking AA coffee ever since. That was my first cup of AA coffee. But he didn't stay long. But see, I don't remember much of what he said. But what's important about it is he came. That's the 12th step. He came. He gets ready to leave, and I thought, what to say? He's pretty nice, you know. And, uh, and he, I, I thought there'd be a kicker, and he came up with, he said, well, why you want somebody to come see you tomorrow? I thought, hell no, I don't want anybody to come see me tomorrow. But I couldn't say no, because there's my mother-in-law and my wife. So I said, yeah, yeah. So I didn't sleep much that night, because I knew they were coming. And I answered that when the phone rang, at, and I didn't go out and get a drink in the morning, because I knew they were coming. And that phone rang at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I answered it because I knew it was them. And it was. This guy said, Paul. And I said, yeah. He said, this is, uh, you had a drink yet? I said, no. He said, then we'll be right on over. I thought, who in hell's coming? We'll be right on here. Here comes two of them, you know. I thought, well, they saw how big I am, so they got two guys, you know. So, but, but now I know you want to take two people on a 12-step call with you, at least two. But anyway, they... They came, a beautiful guy named Harry and a guy named Frenchie from the Dunedin, Florida group. And that's my home group now in Florida, the Dunedin group. And they came and they carried one piece of literature. Members I view of Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember much of what they said. They didn't have a big book or anything. They just carried one piece of literature. I remember much about what they said. But he remember Frenchie saying, Paul, if you go to 38 meetings in 30 days, I'll guarantee you, you'll be bouncing up those steps out there. And I thought, no, I won't because I don't live in Florida. I won't be here in 30 days, you know. So, but I like what they said, but I, you know, I wasn't ready. So I went home to Cincinnati and I tried to control my drinking for three weeks. On August 2nd, 1976, very, very drunk, as I mentioned earlier, carrying an eight pack of beer, I went to the St. Francis carrying it. Now, it doesn't matter where I went, I was ready. Doesn't matter what program I went through. In that program, I found out that I'm an alcoholic. I got this disease called alcoholism. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a weak person. I'm a sick person. I'm not a bad person trying to get good. I'm a sick person trying to get well in this program, and i got to give myself that slack. That, hey, I'm sick. I'm still sick. See, I'll be an alcoholic till the day I die, and maybe even afterward, because I hope to be in the meeting in the sky with them all. But, but uh, So I found out that I, what I had. That's what taught me what I had in that care unit. And I saw other people like me, and they made me go to my first day meeting. And I would never go out on my own. I walk in, there's a beautiful guy named Owen B., and uh, Owen, chairing that meeting, he had 17 years of sobriety. I thought, how in hell do you don't drink for seven years, 17 years? And uh, then I went to my second AA meeting. And see, God knows me. But he had a woman give this lead. She had a year of sobriety. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I thought she liked me, you know, and I loved her. I wanted what she had. and uh, But I didn't know how to get it. So... But the meeting was over. I asked her, I said, how do you stay sober? Do you use vitamins? What do you do? And, uh, she said, no, we use these 12 steps, this program. So I looked at these 12 steps while I was in there, and I thought, well, 
You know, some of these I can get done before I get out of here. I probably get, maybe get all these done before I get out of here, but, but, uh, some of them are going to take a little longer because they scared the hell out of me, you know, when I saw them. But thank God I skipped the ones that made me, uh, fearful. Thank God I didn't worry about that. And thank God I know today to start their number for a reason. We start at number one, you see. So what I have to do is every day to myself, I admit to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic and I cannot manage my own life. No human power can relieve my alcoholism, but God can and will if he sought. Then I make a decision for that day to try to turn my will and my life and all the events in it, this thinking apparatus, my thoughts and my actions, the kind of life I'm going to have, the kind of death I'm going to have, I'm going to turn that over to God, to protection and care of God. After about, I forget how many years now, two or three maybe, I finally sat down and started writing my fourth step. See, I was carrying this inventory in my mind. I had all these defects. and Don't do not do what I do or did, you know. I wasted a lot of time. But on the other side of that coin, I was getting involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, the activity of AA. You know, I'd get involved, starting some groups, uh, intergroup, and, uh, and I became uh, institution chairperson for intergroup and eventually became uh, intergroup chairman. And I was getting involved. I got involved going to prisons. Uh, we had a lot of prison meetings. We went to Chillicothe and Lima and London and Workhouse and got involved in the institutions. So to see what that did, that let, let me, because I come home so damn tired some nights, I didn't have time to think about myself. So I had that inventory laid there, you know, for about two and a half years. Well, I'm sorry, wasn't that long? For a long time. But let's see, when I finally start to write them, I put on this piece of paper, thank God I'm finally starting to write these inventories, you know, these things. And so I listed my resentments and my fears and my guilts and my remorse. I didn't know to list the person I had harmed at that point. I know today to do that. And, uh, and because that's going to help me relieve guilt and remorse, you know. And self-pity is related to, to my resentments. So I put that down. Anger starts my resentments, too. Fears are the big ones. But I put these things down, and then I got some other literature. I tried to follow the big book format, then I got some other literature, and I followed that format. Make a long story short, I had a ton of stuff, you know. It took me two and a half years to finally take that fifth step when I found this priest, and I went down to him, and I said, Father, I want to take this, 12, this, this fifth step. And he had done them before, so he knew what it was all about. And he looked at all that stuff I got, you know. <laughs> if I had everything duplicated, triplicated, I was a sick puppy. But he sat there, and I'm grateful for him, because he sat there. He'd only let me talk an hour at a time. And I'd read this stuff to him, and then uh, he did that for six weeks. Finally, about halfway through, he said, what are you going to do with all this stuff when you get done here? Throw it away? I said, no, I'm going to keep it. Burn it, he said. I said, no, I'm going to keep it to remind myself I did this, you know. And he said, all right. He said, you know all about your, he said, God knows all that stuff. God loves you. Why don't you come back next week with 20 good points about yourself? I had no problem writing those volumes of defects. I couldn't think of 20 good points about Paul. I had a really come a hard thing for me to do. Finally got him because he was a priest, you know, and I was afraid not to get it for him. Came back with him and completed my fifth step. And then went home and followed the big book instruction where it says we sit down for an hour. And we thank God we we review what we've done. We look at these first five steps to feel that we're making that they're in place. That we're not making sand a house without mortar. We're not building it on sand. And we thank God that we know Him better. I do that today. That's a very important paragraph. To thank God that I know God better. You know. And uh, then I banged out step six and seven. I came entirely ready to have God remove them. They're called the bang bang steps. You know. I like that name because. They're on page 76, the third edition, and it's just a paragraph there. Two, two small paragraphs. You become willing in step six, and for something you won't let go of, don't let it hold you up. Ask God to help you willing to let it go, and then say that seven-step prayer. And that's step seven. Step eight and nine is a lifetime process for me. I make these amends for me. If I want to change, step six and seven are the ones that help me change. Steps 8 and 9 help me remove guilt and remorse. It helped me learn how to talk to people one-on-one and establish relationships with people that I would not have ever had if I hadn't done those eight, made those amends. That's the real purpose of our program is to be of maximum assistance to God and our fellow man. 
Now, here's what I want to share with you quickly. We become willing to make these amends wherever possible, it says. My suggestion to you, if you're having a hard time with that, leave the timing of that to God. Just stay willing. Make a list. Say the ones I can make now, the ones I'll make later, the ones I don't know, the ones maybe I'll never make. But put them on paper. Look at them. And leave the timing to God. Because here's what happened to me. There was a guy I was afraid of. I thought he was a mafia member. And I'd had a fight with him in a bar in downtown Cincinnati. And every time he'd walk down 4th Street, mainly in Cincinnati, and I'd cross the other side of the street. And I didn't like myself for that. I was afraid of him. So one day I'm up on 6th Street at a fish market. Connie's sitting out front in the car waiting for me. I'm ordering some fish. In he walks with his lady friend. God sent him. I looked up. I said, well, you sent him. Help me know what to say. So I stuck my hand out. I said, I don't know if you remember me or not. He said, yeah, I remember you. I said, well, I want to tell you, we had that fight in that bar that night. and I'm in AA today. Alcoholic. I'm sober. And help me, me telling you that I'm, I apologize for that will help me stay sober. He said, oh, you're in AA? That's wonderful. You know, he could have said, get the heck out of my face. You know, said, you're, Keep going. He said, he walked out of the door. And I got that good, warm feeling, just like I peed in my pants, <laughs> with, with dark pants on, and like I got today. <laughs> but but uh, that you only get from this program. That's God. That spiritual feeling is God. I got that good, warm feeling. For me, it's God. It's inside me. See, I got that good, warm feeling, and nobody knew I had it. That's what serenity is. You can't tell them what you got even, you know, but but you get it. And now when it comes to me, I say, hey, thanks for coming. You know, Glad you're here. That's God coming to me. But I walked out of there with that good, warm feeling, and I didn't tell my wife, you see, because that makes amends for me. Another guy is afraid to make an amend, too. I'm at an AA meeting one night. God sends him to an AA meeting. Here he comes down the steps. I thought, well, you sent him. John, I apologize for that fight we were in and getting you. I got him into this fight. He got beat up and whatever. But uh, God sent them. So my suggestion is on the amends, if you don't balk at them, just be willing. I do steps 10, 11, and 12 on, they're my, my gross steps. I continue to take inventory when I'm wrong and admit it. I'm wrong a lot. And I admit it a lot. There's a lot of apologizing in, between in Connie and I in our marriage. We've been going through some stressful situations with moving. And we got evicted from our condo uh, down there because we had three dogs, you know. And I'm not going to lose my dogs, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Connie won't either. So we, uh, so we're in the process of moving down there again, you know. And uh, make a long story short, there's a, the tenth step. You see, I like being wrong a little bit because making up's fun sometimes, you know. But uh, if I'm wrong, I got to admit it. And what I've learned is the sooner the better, because I'll be as happy as I let myself be. If I want to be happy, I just got to do these programs, these steps. And uh, step 11, prayer and meditation. I'm learning to listen more and talk less. The longer I'm around here, I know it's in the listening. I find God in the still, small voice inside me. Not talk, but I find God in other people too. And God, so it's a mixture of both, you know. And uh, one-on-one sponsorship has really, really helped me find God in people and myself. And the 12th step, you know, is having had a spiritual awakening, and I call it an experience even because I've had experiences. As little insights, a change in my thinking, new insights, a whole new way of reacting to life. As knowing what happiness and peace and calm and serenity is, which I never ever knew before. Knowing how to live one day at a time, learning how to live in the now. That's the most important thing. If I can stay right now and keep my attention focused on another alcoholic, I don't have any problems. Or another person not being an alcoholic. Having had that, then I try to carry this message. It says try. To alcoholics and others and practice principles in all my affairs. So in the world, everything, i got to try to be a worthy member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world to me. And what i got to do is carry a little bit of this program with me to the people in the world. They don't know why I'm smiling. The biggest 12-step call you can make, my first sponsor told me, was to uh, walk down the street with a smile on your face. The biggest 12-step call you can make because... People want to know where you got it, and they probably knew you were an alcoholic anyway, you know, so they probably know where you're getting it. But uh, 
So anyway, where I'm at today, and I'm going to close, is uh, AA has given me more than I can tell you. It's given me a loving God. You see, I never knew what, what a loving God was. And what I've learned today is to try to accept that love. My job is to accept that love. God's given me this gift of the program. And my job is to accept it. We're in Florida and I love it. Although I miss the people back here. Um, one thing I'll close with. Oh, by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I have here on my big book a piece of paper that comes from the desk of God. And it says on here, St. Paul, you did a fine job. Keep it going. And I cherish this with my heart because it came, it was given to me by my sponsor, Mr. John, I call him John, his friends call him Bill. Mr. John Lafayette, you know, my sponsor. When he asked me to give a lead up in Dayton one time, he gave me that. And I cherish that job. From the desk of God. All right. Okay. I apologize if I got a little disjointed in this lead, but I'm just grateful to be here. And I love everybody in this room. I want to close with this. It was given to me by my first sponsor. And he says this. In addition to saying one other thing. If you want to know God, like the first 100 people knew God, get into this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Read pages for newcomers. Pages 60 to 64. Every day for 30 days. Pages 86, 87, 88. Every day for 30 days. And read page 27 because it will keep you from copping out of this program and going to a church. Because we need, initially, because we need more than the church. We don't mean we don't need a church, but we need a spiritual experience. It's what we find in here in AA. And, and you want to find God, he told me, Paul, you come to Bill Wilson of your area. He said, go home to Cincinnati and start these groups. So I did. I didn't know any better. But he said, what you want to do is talk to God with no middlemen. Eyeball to eyeball with God. That's where this program's at. Eyeball to eyeball, no middleman. Okay. Then he also gave me this card that says, to have a friend, you have to be a friend. Communication is the beginning of understanding. Want to be a friend to God? We've got to be a friend to God by communicating. Friendship begins with communication. To have God as a friend, we have to be a friend to God by communication. Only this friendship I can read this better. Nope, can't read it that way either. Oh, only this friendship with God will destroy our greatest enemy, fear. Fear, fear. You've got to hear three times. Faith is the absence of fear, and fear is the absence of faith. Love you and thank you for having me. Wish you the best. Now see you as we trudge this road of happy destiny. And see you in Florida. See you.